found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, if you go ahead and open up your Bibles and take a look at Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. Now, who has their own Bible? Okay, Vince, what version is yours? Good. Sherilyn, what version is yours? NIV? Lois? New Living? Okay. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you have your own Bibles, take a look and read for me verse 21. Okay, now the only Bible that's probably in here that has it is Vince's. Yeah. So in many translations, it'll go from verse 20 to 22. Um, in the King James Version, in the New King James Version, it will say, it'll give you verse 21. Um, and... In Mark, it also gives us uh, that same verse. And so if you want to look at the parallel passages for this, it would be in Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9. Now, who wrote Mark? And who, but who was he writing for? No. Mark was recounting a story from who? As he was writing. Peter. Mark was recounting, he was writing this for Peter. So who went to the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter. And so Peter comes down and in Mark's Gospel it says this. And then also in the New King James Version. Matthew, um, it wasn't in the original manuscript or in some of the, well I shouldn't say the original. It wasn't in some of the manuscripts. And so they just left it out. But it's elsewhere. So it's interesting. Every once in a while you'll go through the Bible and you'll just be reading. And we don't even notice it. But all of a sudden there's a verse that's missing. And we just go from 20 to 22 and not even think about it. Uh, but that's why it's not in some of the, some of the versions. But it is, in, it is in Mark. So that has nothing to do with the actual lesson. But... It is sort of interesting to see that. Um, but go ahead and read Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through, in most of your versions, 20. And then just in your own mind, 21 would be, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. But go ahead and just go ahead and read those.
if you are interested as we go through this and you turn to Mark chapter 9, you can find the same story. And it might be interesting to hear it from Mark's perspective versus, or from Peter's perspective versus from Matthew's perspective. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Also, Matthew just sort of condenses all of this to focus on the power of Christ. Doesn't really focus on the boy, doesn't focus on some of the other things, where Mark and Luke give more of an explanation of that. Um, but remember, the first 13 verses of, of this chapter were the transfiguration, where they saw the glory of Christ. And now they're coming down from this mountain experience. And again, in, in Mark's uh, explanation, it says, when they saw Jesus, the crowd was in awe. And you just can imagine that they're being in awe because they still reflected this glory of seeing the glory of Christ. And they're coming down, and they've had this mountaintop experience, and now they come down to a very different scene. And the Gospel writers seem to stress the tremendous contrast between the glory above and the shame and the confusion below. And I guess we probably can all, you know, relate to that, that we've had some of these mountaintop experiences, and then 15 minutes later, we're back in the real world. And said, really? Uh, let's go back to the mountain. Uh, and I'm sure that most of us would prefer to live the mountaintops of the spiritual highs of our lives. You know, those times when God is really moving, you feel his power, you're saying, okay, bring it on. I'm ready. I'm good. You know, all is fantastic. Um, nothing seems impossible. Everything, you know, there's just an excitement, a can-do attitude about everything. I love those times. They're very small. Um, there's, it's hard to stay on the mountaintop because the reality is, is that we go back into the world. We go back into life. Um, and to get to the next mountaintop, we have to, you know, go to the valley in order to get back to the next mountaintop. And it's the valleys we don't like. It's those times where we feel discouraged, um, challenged. We may feel it's beyond our human ability to cope with certain things. Uh, we're involved with people who are also hurting. And so there's just this sense where you know, real life is lived out in the valleys. And God gives us those mountaintop experiences to equip us to be able to deal with the real life situations. Um, but often we find ourselves trying to live the Christian life on our own power um, without really surrendering and without really acknowledging the power of Christ to make the difference. We will just sort of roll up our sleeves and we'll get in there and we'll do it only to fail. Um, and most of the time, after we failed, we really don't understand why. And we start to question our own selves. Well, maybe I didn't work hard enough. Maybe I didn't do this hard enough. Maybe I didn't apply the right methodology. Um, perhaps I should try something different. What is it that I've missed? I've talked to different 
people. I've talked to different pastors, and they'll be they'll sit there and they'll go, "Well, I tried this methodology. We tried this for we tried this. We tried this. We tried this," and they'll try everything. And then you know, just a simple question: Well, how much have you guys prayed about this? Oh well, we really haven't. We've just you know, we went to this next conference, this next seminar on church growth, church development, and we just, we haven't spent time praying. And I go, so you're trying to do everything on your own strength. You're trying to do everything on your own power. It doesn't work. No matter, you know, there may be moments where it works, but it doesn't work in the, the long haul. So we miss the fact that faith is the key to everything and that faith is enhanced by prayer and fasting. And so it's, you know, there's all these verses come together uh, to focus on that. Um, so this morning, as I'm going through Matthew, I'm also going to be sort of sidebarring to uh, Mark. So Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, are coming down off the mountain. Um, they were full of encouragement, but what they were about to confront was altogether different. Uh, in verse 14, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and, and often into the water. So in Matthew's account, as soon as he comes down, he's confronted with this boy or this father with the problem with his son who's having seizures. Mark says, when they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. So the first thing that Mark points out is that as soon as they came down from the mountain, here was the, fair, the, fair, the scribes and here were the disciples and there's an argument going on. Um, and then when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. So the crowd is watching this argument take place. Jesus is coming down from the mountain. He's, you know, the disciples are there and they just see this glory. And so they run to Jesus. Um, but the, the scribes and the, and the disciples are arguing. And the argument centered around the disciples' inability to deal with the demon-possessed. They had tried and they had failed. And no doubt the scribes were probably condemning the entire movement as fraudulent. And the world really hasn't changed much since then. It only takes one failure for the world to condemn all of Christianity. Okay. So Christianity is going along. Something's, you know, it's having an impact. And then people will point out one failure. And they will judge all of Christianity on that one failure. We do it in almost every such situation. We do it with almost any movement. A movement can be doing something wonderful, and then they'll point out one thing and say, see, see. And the, fair, the scribes are doing it, and we do it today. The scribes had seen miracles, and when they saw the miracles, who did they attribute it to? Satan. And then when there's a failure, 
who do they attribute it to? Yeah. So it's just sort of this ongoing event that's going on. So they were quick to condemn the entire movement. And the only reason, folks, that we have human failure is because we have humans doing the work. And whenever you have humans doing the work, you're going to have human failure. And that will never change. But human failure does not reflect upon God, but upon us. So God is still able. God is still alive. God is still moving. God is still powerful. God still transforms people's lives. God still heals. God still guides. God still directs. Humans make mistakes. Humans fail. And we can't judge God based on a human's success or failure. And that's, we have a tendency to do that. We, we judge God based on humans' success or failures. So Jesus looks at it and it says, he asked the crowd to explain, what the, what the, what's this discussion? What's going on? Why are they fighting? You know, what's happening here? And then one man spoke up, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and he is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Now once again, Mark's version says that he's also deaf and dumb. And that he, this is all caused by a demon. Um, and so the man had come to find Jesus. And Jesus wasn't there, so he found the other nine disciples. And he said, well, if Jesus is in here, maybe you guys can do it. And he goes to these guys to help them heal his son, because who wouldn't want his son healed? And the disciples are not able to do it. And it had to be somewhat embarrassing for the disciples, because back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had sent the disciples out to heal the sick, to pray for, to cast out demons. And they came back with glowing reports of how they had done that. And so the, this wasn't their first time dealing with demon possession. This wasn't the first time in dealing with this. But this time, something's changed. And there is no success. They're not able to cast the demon out of this person. Um, so Jesus had been apart from them for just a short period of time. And immediately, they're not able to do what Jesus has empowered them to do. So that was the situation that Jesus encountered at the foot of the mountain. Just was transfigured. The disciples were on an amazing high. They come down to fighting, to failure, to questioning. And, you know, and then the scribes mocking them. Now, if you came down from the mountain from that, what would be your first inclination? Excuse me. I'm going back up to the mountain. You know that idea of those three tabernacles you were talking about? <laughs> not a bad idea. Let's go build those tabernacles. Let's go back up there and not deal with these stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. Um, so what does Jesus do? How did Jesus respond? In verse 17, and Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now that's sort of an interesting response that Jesus gives in verse 17, especially to the father of, of this child. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Why did Jesus respond like that? 
because Christ was not a sort of fly-off-the-handle, hot-tempered individual who just would lose it like most of humans do. Um, he, he understood. So why did he say, you perverse and foolish generation? How long am I going to have to be among you? How long am I going to have to put up with you? Why is Jesus so indignant or angry? And who is he angry with? And in Matthew, you don't really see it. But again, go to Mark, and you realize that he's not angry at the man. It's focused on the scribes and the crowd. And what were the scribes doing? Here was a man who came in with his son, who was demon-possessed, and he was looking for healing. And instead of the scribes, who are supposed to be the religious leaders, having any compassion on this man, they were just thrilled that he wasn't healed. Hear that. Here was this possibility of this person who could be healed, and instead of anybody caring, they were just glad that the, that the disciples failed. Imagine the amount of jealousy that is there that would replace all that compassion. So instead of seeing somebody healed, instead of seeing somebody come to Christ, instead of somebody seeing a life transformed, we just want to see them fail because of our jealousy or because of our pride or because of our fear. Same emotions today. There's times that we don't want to see other people succeed because of our fears, because of our jealousies, because of our pride. Um, so again, and then the, and then the crowd, um, they just continue to want to see Jesus and they see the spectacle and they're all involved. And when they're watching this spectacle with the disciples and the scribes, arguing and then they see Jesus come down so they run to Jesus and they're just looking for the next high they're looking for the next excitement they're looking for something that you know is exciting but they're not looking for a messiah so once again with everything that's going on the people are still rejecting Jesus and so Jesus says why how much longer am i going to have to put up with this kind of faithless and twisted generation. Um, but Jesus still has compassion. In Mark chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus asked the, his father, how long has this been happening to him? So Jesus looks at the father, how long has this been happening to your son? And he said, from childhood. And has often thrown him in both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. And Jesus said to him, if you can. Um, Jesus' disciples had failed and now all eyes were on Jesus as this man says, if you can do anything, please take pity on us. And as soon as he said that, if you can, Jesus says to him, not, not if I can, if you can. You know, says, if you can. 
So he handled their challenge, or this challenge, with a challenge of his own. The father said to Jesus, but if you can do anything, and Jesus replied, if you can. The father's request was turned back to him in the form of a challenge. The challenge was for him to also meet the condition of the miraculous, and that was just to have faith. What do you mean, if I can? Of course I can. Are you able to receive that which I I can do? And when the father heard this, he cried out, and this is my favorite verse in the scripture. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That is my fav- one of my favorite verses. I do believe, now help me overcome my unbelief. Um, notice the honesty of the Father. He was as honest and sincere as he possibly could. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And I have found that before anybody can grow, before any growth can take place, there has to be a point of honesty. Um, before faith can be increased, before we can make it to the next level, before we can do anything, we have to be honest with ourselves. And we say, yeah, you know what? This is the area of my life where I, I'm struggling. This is the area of my life where I'm, I'm not living up to what God would have me to live up to, what my potential is. These are the areas of weaknesses in my life. And until we confront those, until we acknowledge those, there is no growth. I was with a a group of pastors, and I was confessing an area of my life, and it wasn't a a, a sin as much as it was that we would all get together, and I could easily deflect the conversation. I could go down a rabbit hole. I could go down a sidetrack. And I acknowledge, I say, guys, I just have to apologize that I, I recognize I do that. And one of them looked at me and he goes, Andy, it's great that you are self-aware. But now you need to be (laughs) self-correcting. And I thought, whoa. You know, and that's at that point. Until we are truly aware, we will never correct the things in our life that need to be corrected. Um, And so he's that honest. We have to ask ourselves, which is a worse problem? Faltering in our faith? Or faking our faith. You know, and not being honest about the fact that we may have doubts. Um, because when we have those doubts, we're not fooling anybody. Because the only person that matters is Christ, and he knows what's in our heart. So we're just acknowledging the truth to him. So honesty with our doubts can lead to a discovery in greater faith. Um, and that's why I just love, I do believe, now help me overcome my unbelief. Um, he's saying, I believe, I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to learn and hang in there until I do. And really, I think that could be the cry for each of us. This is an area in my life, Lord, where I do believe, but now help me in my unbelief. Help me to truly acknowledge and help me to truly surrender. Um, we must never be afraid to confess our sense of inadequacy or our struggle with faith as we come to God. Because when we do, he will bless us and the, the faith that we have. And so in verse 18, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. So when Jesus saw that father exercise that little faith, he rebuked this unclean spirit and cast the spirit out. 
Perhaps a cheer went up for the disciples. Yay, finally, yes. You know, we win. Uh, and the scribes may have been irritated and frustrated and upset because Jesus did heal them. But no doubt the father rejoiced with his son. They were the ones that were thrilled because it was personal to them. Um, and the good news is that when we face up to our own faltering faith, when we admit it, when we recognize it, that is when we give God room to do what only he can do. We recognize it and he does what he does. Notice what Jesus did not do. Notice what he did not do. He didn't say, sorry, you don't have enough faith. Go home and come back when your faith is stronger. He didn't say, a miracle can only happen if you have a certain quota or level of faith. No, he didn't do any of that. Jesus just went on and healed the boy. Um, now, Jesus, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And again, that's the same honest question that the father had. And how often we hinder ourselves in growing in Christian maturity because we are unwilling to ask God why we failed or why we got stuck. Instead, many times when we fail or we get stuck, we don't ask God, we find someone to blame. I wouldn't get stuck if it wasn't for that bad sermon I heard on Sunday. I would, I, you know, my, my spiritual life would be greater if the worship team was stronger. I would be strong, if, I'd be a much healthier person if my spouse was better. I mean, or or if whatever it is, folks, we make up excuses. And the disciples just say, you know what, we failed. We couldn't do it. What, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? And you know, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to almost every of our life, when we can finally say, you know what? What did I do wrong? Instead of looking for the first person to blame for my failure or my shortcoming. Again, we may hear the sermon and somebody's hearing a sermon and they go, you know who really needs to hear this? And we think that in our mind. This is a great sermon, but I don't need it. You know, I'll tell you who needs it. All the people who weren't here today because it was too cold. You know, they're the ones that need it. Um, we'll read our Bible and apply the lessons to everyone but ourselves. And the first ingredient needed to have great faith is humility. In fact, the first ingredient for almost anything is humility. And the disciples have it here. They were confronted with their failure, and they looked at Jesus and said, what happened? Where did I miss it? Where did I get it wrong? And Jesus' answer to their question is direct and yet encouraging. In verse 20, and I will add 21 out of Mark, and he said to them, because of the limitlessness of the littleness, excuse me, the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you should say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move. 
and nothing shall be impossible to you. And then verse 21 being added in, in for Mark, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, when I was at Old Roberts University, this was probably the most popular verse in, in the Bible Belt and in the buckle of the Bible Belt and the name of claimant theology and the faith-based theology. You know, if you had faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. And they did so much disservice to this verse um, because they just, well, they, they talk about moving mountains. Sure, Jesus could have picked up a mountain and moved it to another location and would have served no purpose. And this whole idea of moving mountains was a common term, <coughs> excuse me, was a common figure of speech at that time that meant overcoming obstacles. That when an obstacle comes your way, whatever that obstacle is, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you would be able to remove that obstacle. And the mustard seed was just the smallest agricultural seed at the time. And so it wasn't the size of the faith that they were focusing on, it was the quality of the faith. And so how does our faith grow and what does it really mean to develop it? Because it's easy to trust God when life is going well, but the true mark of faith is how do we deal with the things when life isn't going well? How do we deal when we have the setbacks? when our efforts turn sour, whatever it may be, how do we handle that? Do we continue to praise God in all circumstances or do we only praise God when things are going the way we want them to go? And it's when we were praising God in all circumstances that that's when we're having a faith that is continuing to grow and it's a quality faith. It's not just a quantity faith. It's a quality faith that says, you know what? I trust God in all circumstances, not just when life's going my way. Um, and then William, William Barclay, not Charles Barclay, a comment on this phrase, explained that if you have faith enough, all difficulties can be solved, and even the hardest task can be accomplished. Faith in God is the instrument that allows men to remove the hills of difficulty which blocked their path. Jesus promises that nothing shall be impossible for you. And that's restricted only to that which is in the framework of God's will. And again, that was taken way out of context by a lot of people that it has nothing to do with God's will. It's just whatever I want. Nothing is impossible for me. Again, notice Jesus didn't say, I'm the only one who can handle this kind of situation. If only you had said the right words. Because only seminary trained people can handle things like this. He said that their power failure was a direct result of prayer failure. Folks, if we're going to try to do anything, anything for God, and it's not with prayer, we're not doing it for God. Because if we're not getting orders from God, if we're not being transformed by his word, if we're not being led by his spirit, 
we're just doing things that look like what everybody else is doing. So again, he said, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. Um, so Jesus was revealing that the importance of prayer when it comes to faith. Um, the work of God must be done in the power of God or it will not succeed. And prayer is central in tapping into the power of God. Who got the prayer? You know who got the prayer medal? Who? No, the purchase. Deb Brown? Okay. Your boss? I wanted that one. I do too. I'm going to talk to him about it. But I have, I, he may be making all of them again. So. But just that power of prayer. And that's really been the emphasis this year with the church, of the prayer ministry, of having people in the prayer room during the service praying. If people need prayer, they can go in there. Of the different aspects that it doesn't matter what programs we do, folks. If there's not prayer centered upon them, we're just doing them. Um, so all this revolves around our relationship to him. I want to close with an illustration from The Empire Strikes Back. Okay. <laughs> if I, had, I wonder what kind of response I would have said if I want to close with an illustration from the scripture. Uh, <laughs> uh, another one of those illustrations, huh? Uh, <laughs> But in The Empire Strikes Back, Luke Skywalker goes to seek out who's going to train him and to become a Jedi Knight. And he crashes his X-Wing fighter on the swampy planet of Dagobah, where there he is shocked to find that the one who is to train him is an old, small, green guy by the name of Yoda. And Yoda tries to convince Luke that he is able to free his X-Wing fighter from the swamp. Um, and in order to fulfill his destiny, he had, he had to listen to Yoda. The problem, and Yoda tells them that he had to unlearn what he had learned. And there are, that is so true for us. There's so many things that if we are really going to live free, things that we're going to have to unlearn. Um, and there are times in my past and even times today that I do exactly what Luke did. When as soon as he got confronted, the first, he had already admitted defeat before he had even attempted the task. The X-Wing is in the swamp. There's nothing I can do. There's no way I can get it out. Admitted defeat. Second, he grumbled and complained. Why did God do this? Why am I here? Why, you know, he didn't use those words. But how many times do we say, why did I do this? How come this is happening? Why do I have, you know, what, what am I doing on this stupid planet with a little green guy? You know, and we will do the same thing. And third, he was just riddled with unbelief. Now, those are the same three things that I go through when I get confronted with something. You know, I'm defeated before I start. I grumble and complain about what I got to do. And then I'm sort of riddled with unbelief. Um, and so for 
Luke, he had to overcome that. And so to accomplish our purpose, to accomplish our vision, we have to cooperate, not in the realm of doubt, but in the realm of faith. And to do that, we have to unlearn what we have learned. And what's the best way to unlearn what you have learned? Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by the changing the way you think through the word and through his spirit. And we, we have to let God, through his word, help us to relearn what we have already learned or unlearn what we have learned by changing how we think. The Word of God does that. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Folks, in my last years of ministry, my goal, my desire is to see people who have two things. Truly a hunger for the Word of God and a prayer life that sustains in the midst of everything else that is going on. Those are the two things that God said will increase our faith. And then third, believe in the Word of God and act upon the Word of God. If we are to grow in Christ, we have got to realize that it is quite possible that we do not always trust the Lord as much as we think we do or as much as we would like to do. And so just to be honest about all those things. A hunger for the Word of God. I would love for it that every person had a Bible and every person was in one-to-one -one or in digs or signed up for the small group during the Lenten season so that we can just challenge each other to get deeper into God's Word because it's His Word that's going to change us, not we ourselves. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day and I just thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship you to grow in an understanding of what that means, to experience the fullness of who you are. And Lord, help us, because we do believe. But help us in our times of unbelief. And help us to be honest enough with ourselves to recognize, recognize those times. That it's by coming to you with that kind of honesty that you can continue to grow us into your people. And we thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.